Do you love the American Constitution? We too. Please help letting this podcast survive in the current cancel culture. Amazon recently deleted our Peter Kanzler collection, probably for being too cheap. It was Locke, Hobbes and the US Constitution for only 15 bucks. Check out our Peter Kanzler at Barnes and Noble, Lulu or do a quick DuckDuckGo search to buy American collections that come at the lowest price possible to keep civil law great. That's P-E-T-E-R-K-A-N-Z-L-E-R. Featuring the original texts from Locke, Hobbes, Rousseau, the US Constitution, Machiavelli and many more always bound together in just one book. Thank you very much. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad, Chapter 43 and 44. Chapter 43 Tommy Tom, behind his chair, was thunderstruck. The declaration produced an immediate sensation. Let them go, because this is best in my knowledge, which has never deceived you, Jim insisted. There was a silence. In the darkness of the courtyard could be heard the subdued, whispering, shuffling noise of many people. Doramin raised his heavy head and said there was no more reading of hearts than touching the sky with the hand. But he consented. The others gave their opinion in turn. It is best. Let them go, and so on. But most of them simply said that they believed Tuan Jim. In this simple form of assent to his will lies the whole gist of the situation. Their creed his truth and the testimony to that faithfulness which made him, in his own eyes, the equal of the impeccable men who never fall out of the ranks. Stein's words, romantic, romantic, seem to ring over those distances that will never give him up now to a world indifferent to his failings and his virtues, and to that ardent and clinging affection that refuses him the dole of tears in the bewilderment of a great grief, and of eternal separation. From the moment the sheer truthfulness of his last three years of life carries the day against the ignorance, the fear, and the anger of men, he appears no longer to me as I saw him last, a white speck catching all the dim light left upon a sombre coast and the darkened sea, but greater and more pitiful in the loneliness of his soul, that remains even for her who loved him best, a cruel and insoluble mystery. It is evident that he did not mistrust Brown. There was no reason to doubt the story, whose truth seemed warranted by the rough frankness, by a sort of virile sincerity in accepting the morality and consequences of his acts. But Jim did not know the almost inconceivable egotism of the man which made him, when resisted and foiled in his will, mad with the indignant and revengeful rage of a thwarted autocrat. But if Jim did not mistrust Brown, he was evidently anxious that some misunderstanding should not occur, ending perhaps in collision and bloodshed. It was for this reason that directly the Malay chiefs had gone he asked Jewel to get him something to eat, 
as he was going out of the fort to take command in the town. On her remonstrating against this on the score of his fatigue, he said that something might happen for which he would never forgive himself. I am responsible for every life in the land, he said. He was moody at first. She served him with her own hands, taking the plates and dishes of the dinner service presented him by Stein from Tam Itam. He brightened up after a while, told her she would be again in command of the fort for another night. "'There's no sleep for us, old girl,' he said, "'while our people are in danger.' Later on he said jokingly that she was the best man of them all. "'If you and Dain Maurice had done what you wanted,' Not one of these poor devils would be alive today. Are they very bad? she asked, leaning over his chair. Men act badly sometimes, without being much worse than others, he said after some hesitation. Tommy Tom followed his master to the landing stage outside the fort. The night was clear, but without a moon, and the middle of the river was dark while the water underneath each bank reflected the light of many fires, as on a night of Ramadan, Tammy Tom said. War-boats drifted silently in the dark lane, or, anchored, floated motionless with a loud ripple. That night there was much paddling in a canoe and walking at his master's heels for Tammy Tom. Up and down the street they tramped, where the fires were burning, inland on the outskirts of the town where small parties of men kept guard in the fields. Tuan Jim gave his orders and was obeyed. Last of all they went to the Rajah's stockade, which a detachment of Jim's people manned that night. The old Rajah had fled early in the morning with most of his women to a small house he had near a jungle village on a tributary stream. Cassim, left behind, had attended the council with his air of diligent activity to explain away the diplomacy of the day before. He was considerably cold-shouldered, but he managed to preserve his smiling, quiet alertness, and professed himself highly delighted when Jim told him sternly that he proposed to occupy the stockade that night with his own men. After the council broke up, he was heard outside accosting this and that deputing chief, and speaking in a loud, gratified tone of the Rajah's property being protected in the Rajah's absence. About ten or so, Jim's men marched in. The stockade commanded the mouth of the creek, and Jim meant to remain there till Brown had passed below. A small fire was lit on the flat, grassy point outside the wall of stakes, and Tommy Tom placed a little folding stool for his master. Jim told him to try and sleep. Tommy Tom got a mat and lay down a little way off, but he could not sleep, though he knew he had to go on an important journey before the night was out. His master walked to and fro before the fire with bowed head and with his hands behind his back. His face was sad. Whenever his master approached him, Tommy Tom pretended to sleep, not wishing his master to know he had been watched. At last his master stood still, looking down on him as he lay, and said softly, "'It is time.' Tommy Tom arose directly and made his preparations. His mission was to go down the river, preceding Brown's boat by an hour or more, to tell Dain Waris, finally and formally, 
that the whites were to be allowed to pass out unmolested jim would not trust anybody else with that service before starting tommy tom more as a matter of form since his position about jim made him perfectly known asked for a token because tuan he said the message is important and these are thy very words i carry his master first put his hand into one pocket and then into another and finally took off his forefinger stein's silver ring which he habitually wore and gave it to tommy tom when tommy tom left on his mission brown's camp on the knoll was dark but for a single small glow shining through the branches of one of the trees the white man had cut down early in the evening brown had received from jim a folded piece of paper on which was written you get a clear road start as soon as your boat floats on the morning tide let your men be careful the bushes on both sides of the creek and the stockade at the mouth are full of well-armed men you would have no chance but i don't believe you want bloodshed brown read it tore the paper into small pieces and turning to cornelius who had brought it said jeeringly good-bye my excellent friend cornelius had been in the fort and had been sneaking around jim's house during the afternoon jim chose him to carry the note because he could speak english was known to brown and was not likely to be shot by some nervous mistake of one of the men as a melee approaching in the dusk perhaps might have been cornelius didn't go away after delivering the paper brown was sitting up over a tiny fire all the others were lying down i could tell you something you would like to know cornelius mumbled crossly brown paid no attention you did not kill him went on the other and what did you get for it you might have had money from the rajah besides the loot of all the bugis houses and now you get nothing you had better clear out from here growled brown without even looking at him but cornelius let himself drop by his side and began to whisper very fast touching his elbow from time to time what he had to say made brown sit up at first with a curse he had simply informed him of dain waris's armed party down the river at first brown saw himself completely sold and betrayed but a moment's reflection convinced him that there could be no treachery intended he said nothing and after a while cornelius remarked in a tone of complete indifference that there was another way out of the river which he knew very well a good thing to know too said brown pricking up his ears and cornelius began to talk of what went on in town and repeated all that had been said in council gossiping in an even undertone at brown's ear as you talk amongst sleeping men you do not wish to wake he thinks he has made me harmless does he mumbled brown very low yes he is a fool a little child he came here and robbed me droned on cornelius and he made all the people believe him but if something happened that they did not believe him any more where would he be and the buki stain who is waiting for you down the river there captain is the very man who chased you up here when you first came brown observed nonchalantly that it would be just as well to avoid him and with the same detached musing air cornelius declared himself acquainted with a backwater broad enough to take brown's boat past waris's camp 
You will have to be quiet, he said as an afterthought, for in one place we pass close behind his camp, very close. They are camped ashore, with their boats hauled up. Oh, we know how to be quiet as mice. Never fear, said Brown. Cornelius stipulated that in case he were to pilot Brown out, his canoe should be towed. I'll have to get back quick, he explained. It was two hours before the dawn when word was passed to the stockade from outlying watchers that the white robbers were coming down to their boat. In a very short time every armed man, from one end of Patizan to the other, was on the alert, yet the banks of the river remained so silent that but for the fires burning with sudden blurred flares the town might have been asleep as if in peacetime. A heavy mist lay very low on the water, making a sort of elusive grey light that showed nothing. When Brown's longboat glided out of the creek into the river, Jim was standing on the low point of land before the Rajah's stockade, on the very spot where, for the first time, he put his foot on Patizan shore. A shadow loomed up, moving in the greyness, solitary, very bulky, and yet constantly eluding the eye. A murmur of low talking came out of it. Brown at the tiller heard Jim speak calmly. A clear road. You had better trust to the current while the fog lasts. But this will lift presently. Yes, presently we shall see clear, replied Brown. The thirty or forty men standing with muskets at ready outside the stockade held their breath. The boogie's owner of the prow, whom I saw on Stein's veranda, and who was amongst them, told me that the boat, shaving the low point close, seemed for a moment to grow big and hang over it like a mountain. "'If you think it worth your while to wait a day outside,' called out Jim, "'I'll try to send you down something, a bullock, some yams, what I can.' The shadow went on moving. "'Yes, do!' said a voice, blank and muffled out of the fog. Not one of the many attentive listeners understood what the words meant, and then Brown and his men in their boat floated away, fading spectrally, without the slightest sound. Thus Brown, invisible in the mist, goes out of Patizan, elbow to elbow with Cornelius in the stern sheets of the longboat. "'Perhaps you shall get a small bullock,' said Cornelius. "'Oh, yes, bullock, yam. You'll get it if he said so. He always speaks the truth. He stole everything I had. I suppose you like a small bullock better than the loot of many houses.' "'I would advise you to hold your tongue.' or somebody here may fling you overboard in this damn fog, said Brown. The boat seemed to be standing still. Nothing could be seen, not even the river alongside. Only the water-dust flew and trickled, condensed, down their beards and faces. It was weird, Brown told me. Every individual man of them felt as though he were adrift alone in a boat, haunted by an almost imperceptible suspicion of sighing, muttering ghosts. "'Throw me out, would you? But I would know where I was,' mumbled Cornelius, surlily. "'I've lived many years here.' "'Not long enough to see through a fog like this,' Brown said, lolling back with his arms swinging to and fro on the useless tiller. "'Yes, long enough for that,' snarled Cornelius. "'That's very useful,' commented Brown. 
Am I to believe you could find that back way you spoke of blindfold like this? Cornelius grunted. Are you too tired to row? he asked after a silence. No, by God, shouted Brown suddenly. Out with your oars there. There was a great knocking in the fog, which after a while settled into a regular grind of invisible sweeps against invisible thole-pins. Otherwise nothing was changed, but for the slight splash of a dipped blade it was like rowing a balloon-car in a cloud, said Brown. Thereafter Cornelius did not open his lips except to ask querulously for somebody to bail out his canoe, which was towing behind the long-boat. Gradually the fog whitened and became luminous ahead. To the left Brown saw a darkness as though he had been looking at the back of the departing night. All at once a big bough covered with leaves appeared above his head, and the ends of twigs, dripping and still, curved slenderly close alongside. Cornelius, without a word, took the tiller from his hand. Chapter 44 I don't think they spoke together again. The boat entered a narrow by-channel, where it was pushed by the oar-blades set into crumbling banks, and there was a gloom as if enormous black wings had been outspread above the mist that filled its depths to the summits of the trees. The branches overhead showered big drops through a gloomy fog. At a mutter from Cornelius, Brown ordered his men to load. "'I'll give you a chance to get even with them before we're done, you dismal cripples, you,' he said to his gang. "'Mind you don't throw it away, you hounds!' Low growls answered that speech. Cornelius showed much fussy concern for the safety of his canoe. Meanwhile, Tommy Tom had reached the end of his journey. The fog had delayed him a little, but he had paddled steadily, keeping in touch with the south bank. By and by, daylight came, like a glow in a ground-glass globe. The shores made on each side of the river a dark smudge, in which one could detect hints of columnar forms and shadows of twisted branches high up. The mist was still thick on the water, but a good watch was being kept, for as Tommy Tom approached the camp the figures of two men emerged out of the white vapour, and voices spoke to him boisterously. He answered, and presently a canoe lay alongside, and he exchanged news with the paddlers. All was well. The trouble was over. Then the men in the canoe let go their grip on the side of his dugout, and incontinently fell out of sight. He pursued his way till he heard voices coming to him quietly over the water, and saw under the now-lifting, swirling mist the glow of many little fires burning on a sandy stretch, backed up by lofty, thin timber and bushes. There again a lookout was kept, for he was challenged. He shouted his name as the two last sweeps of his paddle ran his canoe up on the strand. It was a big camp. Men crouched in many little knots under a subdued murmur of early morning talk. Many thin threads of smoke curled slowly on the white mist. Little shelters, elevated above the ground, had been built for the chiefs. Muskets were stacked in small pyramids, and long spears were stuck singly into the sand near the fires. Tommy Tom, assuming an air of importance, demanded to be led to Dain Waris. He found the friend of his white lord lying on a raised couch made of bamboo, and sheltered by a sort of shed of sticks, covered with mats. 
Dain Waris was awake, and a bright fire was burning before his sleeping place, which resembled a rude shrine. The only son of Nakoda Doramin answered his greeting kindly. Tommy Tom began by handing him the ring which vouched for the truth of the messenger's words. Dain Waris, reclining on his elbow, bade him speak and tell all the news. Beginning with the consecrated formula, The news is good, Tommy Tom delivered Jim's own words. The white men, deputing with the consent of all the chiefs, were to be allowed to pass down the river. In answer to a question or two, Tommy Tom reported the proceedings of the last council. Dain Waris listened attentively to the end, toying with the ring, which ultimately he slipped on the forefinger of his right hand. After hearing all he had to say, he dismissed Tommy Tom to have food and rest. Orders for the return in the afternoon were given immediately. Afterwards Dain Waris lay down again, open-eyed, while his personal attendants were preparing his food at the fire, by which Tommy Tom also sat talking to the men who lounged up to hear the latest intelligence from the town. The sun was eating up the mist. A good watch was kept upon the reach of the main stream, where the boat of the whites was expected to appear every moment. It was then that Brown took his revenge upon the world which, after twenty years of contemptuous and reckless bullying, refused him the tribute of a common robber's success. It was an act of cold-blooded ferocity, and it consoled him on his deathbed like a memory of an indomitable defiance. Stealthily he landed his men on the other side of the island, opposite to the Boogie's camp, and led them across. After a short but silent scuffle, Cornelius, who had tried to slink away at the moment of landing, resigned himself to show the way where the undergrowth was most sparse. Brown held both his skinny hands together behind his back in the grip of one vast fist, and now and then impelled him forward with a fierce push. Cornelius remained as mute as a fish, abject, but faithful to his purpose, whose accomplishment loomed before him dimly. At the edge of the patch of forest Brown's men spread themselves out in cover, and waited. The camp was plain from end to end before their eyes, and no one looked their way. Nobody even dreamed that the white men could have any knowledge of the narrow channel at the back of the island. When he judged the moment come, Brown yelled, "'Let them have it!' and fourteen shots rang out like one. Tommy Tom told me the surprise was so great that, except for those who fell dead or wounded, not a soul of them moved for quite an appreciable time after the first discharge. Then a man screamed, and after that scream a great yell of amazement and fear went up from all throats. A blind panic drove these men in a surging, swaying mob to and fro along the shore like a herd of cattle afraid of the water. Some few jumped into the river then, but most of them did so only after the last discharge. Three times Brown's men fired into the ruck. Brown, the only one in view, cursing and yelling, "'Aim low! Aim low!' Tommy Tom says that as for him, he understood at the first volley what had happened. Though untouched, he fell down and lay as if dead, but with his eyes open. At the sound of the first shots, Dain Waris, reclining on the couch, jumped up and ran out upon the open shore, just in time to receive a bullet in his forehead at the second discharge. 
Tommy Tom saw him fling his arms wide open before he fell. Then, he says, a great fear came upon him, not before. The white men retired as they had come, unseen. Thus Brown balanced his account with the evil fortune. Notice that even in this awful outbreak there is a superiority, as of a man who carries right, the abstract thing, within the envelope of his common desires. It was not a vulgar and treacherous massacre. It was a lesson, a retribution, a demonstration of some obscure and awful attribute of our nature, which, I am afraid, is not so very far under the surface as we like to think. Afterwards the whites depart, unseen by Tam Itam, and seem to vanish from before men's eyes altogether, and the schooner too vanishes after the manner of stolen goods. But a story is told of a white longboat picked up a month later in the Indian Ocean by a cargo steamer, two parched, yellow, glassy-eyed, whispering skeletons in her recognized the authority of a third, who declared that his name was Brown. His schooner, he reported, bound south with a cargo of Java sugar, had sprung a bad leak and sank under his feet. He and his companions were the survivors of a crew of six. The two died on board the steamer which rescued them. Brown lived to be seen by me, and I can testify that he had played his part to the last. It seems, however, that in going away they had neglected to cast off Cornelius's canoe. Cornelius himself Brown had let go at the beginning of the shooting, with a kick for a parting benediction. Tommy Tom, after arising from amongst the dead, saw the Nazarene running up and down the shore amongst the corpses and expiring fires. He uttered little cries. Suddenly he rushed to the water and made frantic efforts to get one of the boogie's boats into the water. Afterwards, till he had seen me, related Tommy Tom, he stood looking at the heavy canoe and scratching his head. What became of him? I asked. Tommy Tom, staring hard at me, made an expressive gesture with his right arm. Twice I struck, Tuan, he said. When he beheld me approaching, he cast himself violently on the ground and made a great outcry, kicking. He screeched like a frightened hen till he felt the point. Then he was still, and lay staring at me while the life went out of his eyes. This done, Tommy Tom did not tarry. He understood the importance of being first with the awful news at the fort. There were, of course, many survivors of Dain Waris's party, but in the extremity of panic some had swum across the river, others had bolted into the bush. The fact is that they did not know, really, who struck that blow, whether more white robbers were not coming, whether they had not already got hold of the whole land. They imagined themselves to be the victims of a vast treachery, and utterly doomed to destruction. It is said that some small parties did not come in till three days afterwards. However, a few tried to make their way back to Patizan at once, and one of the canoes that were patrolling the river that morning was in sight of the camp at the very moment of the attack. It is true that at first the men in her leaped overboard and swam to the opposite bank, but afterwards they returned to their boat and started fearfully upstream. Of these, Tommy Tom had an hour's advance. End of chapters 43 and 44
Do you love the American Constitution? We too. Please help letting this podcast survive in the current cancel culture. Amazon recently deleted our Peter Kanzler collection, probably for being too cheap. It was Locke, Hobbes and the US Constitution for only 15 bucks. Check out our Peter Kanzler at Barnes and Noble, Lulu or do a quick DuckDuckGo search to buy American collections that come at the lowest price possible to keep civil law great. That's P-E-T-E-R-K-A-N-Z-L-E-R. Featuring the original texts from Locke, Hobbes, Rousseau, the US Constitution, Machiavelli and many more always bound together in just one book. Thank you very much.